What's up, guys? We're back. The Hustle and Grind podcast is back on the air, and we're back at you this week with another regular style episode because we've got a regular friend with us today. You got me, Mr. J.K. Blades, as usual, with Mr. Uh, Ryan Chadbourne, Knife Works. And Hello. we got a celebrity with us today, <laughs> <laughs> Todd Harrington. How's uh, it going, guys? TH Knives, right? Yeah, I can't believe I almost forgot that. TH Knives. TH Blades. TH Blades. Fuck. I always just call you Todd. My bad, dude. So Fuck close. Yeah. <laughs> T Family. Yeah. Yeah. yeah T Family. You want to know what's funny about that? Is that Jason, you're actually the reason it's called TH Blades. You're the you're the exact reason. And it's because it was called TH Knives. And the first time you had me on was, you know, a while back, but you introduced it as TH Blades. And I was like, the podcast ends, and I'm like, well, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> well, damn, I didn't realize that. I had just started it. Yeah. Hell, that's been a long time since you've been on. Doesn't seem like it. Right now, huh? Yeah. yeah, it was before I was on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So welcome yep. to the podcast for the second time. Thanks for coming on with us. How's Thank life? You. How's everything been? Let's get back into some of that regular shop talk and knife talk and fun shit this week. How about it? I'd love to, man. Um, yeah, a couple things with me. Um, I, I joined the uh, I joined the, the $60 a year club. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, hopefully, um, you know, that should, that should give me a little more momentum trying to make this more of a, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't want it to be a, a full-time thing, but I, I kind of feel like it's turning into that to be honest. Could you um, swing that with all your, I don't know. Entrepreneurship. I, I, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe, I mean, I definitely have the stick for it. I'm in the right industry. Right. I mean, right. that's kind of what's how it started. It never was meant to be a business, but, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing great on orders. I actually can't keep up and I closed my books about, uh, three weeks ago. Nice. So, um, I'm going to open them again sometime mid August, uh, for, for holidays. But I mean, Hey, I, I mean, I, I pride myself on, I don't know shit, you know, ask me, ask me about, you know, something in the kitchen and I'll be, I'll be way more confident, but you know, I'm, I, I'm super humbled being, you know, sitting here talking to you guys always, you know, going to, I went to my second blade show and, you know, I'm talking to all these guys. I was like a mouse, you know, I, I, I certainly didn't have a voice there. So I, you know, I just shut up and, you know, walked around and admired a lot of things that I just couldn't dare dream of doing, or, you know, all these guys are like celebrities to me. So, you know, to go over there and, and, you know, ask the stupidest question probably to them, um, you know, but I'm, I'm learning, so I'm going to keep it that way. Yeah. Don't worry about that. We're in the same boat, me and you. That's for sure. I, I do not in any way, shape or form consider myself a professional. Yeah. Me neither. I would like to be, but I try, you know? Yeah. I, it's yeah. uh what do they call it? Imposter syndrome. You were, you know, you worry that you're coming off as an imposter when you're actually not. Sure, sure. Which, which I felt that way before. I felt that way in kitchens. I felt that way. It took me four years before I'd call myself a mechanic, you know. But Yeah, no, I mean, that's intimidating to me, too. I see you guys, you know, I see all these guys, like, welding. Like, I've never welded, you know. I mean, I'm taking, uh, you know, two blacksmith courses uh, as soon as I get back from my, my summer vacation in Mexico with the family. Uh, as soon as I get back, I'm, I'm taking two blacksmith, blacksmith classes with uh, – uh, Stone Fox Forge, I think it is. I'm not I think familiar. those are the guys in uh, out in Utah. Um, but just the schedule worked with mine 
uh, and I follow him on Instagram. So um, I, I believe it's Stone Fox Forge, but that's where I'm doing uh, like two little classes. There's no like certificate. I just want to get hands on, you know, with people that know what they're doing, watching me and, you know, I mean, I don't know anything, so <laughs> I'm leading right. with that foot. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know shit. <laughs> forging is like a whole nother. That's a whole nother hobby on top of a hobby. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I've never gotten too much into forging. I did make some billets back in the day, um, just some really low layer stuff and then stock removal from them. But man, to me, it just it makes sense. The theory of it. I understand the theory of forging and moving the metal. But when that hammer gets to swing in, the metal doesn't do what I tell it most of the time. So totally to me, it's just easier. Well, obviously it's easier to do stock removal, but I'm just a huge fan of the finished product, you know, going through the steps and making it sharp and shiny. And if I yeah. start with a sheet of steel versus a bar of steel, it doesn't make that much difference to me. You know, I, I think that too. And I feel that there's like a little bit of a, like a weird sub community there. It is. Um, I listen to like, I listen to a bunch of podcasts, at least the ones that I think matter, at least to me. And one of my favorite ones is knife talk. Um, and obviously Jeff Fader is a, a huge influence in the community and he's, he's got a loud voice and a lot of guys listen to him, but I will say that, um, you know, his hot takes that he does and, you know, I'm just getting caught up because I'm a new guy here, but um, all of his hot takes, like I, I'm like 50, 50 split, you know, I'm, I'm just like you, you know, Jason, I mostly do stock removal and I have an anvil just because I was like, Oh, I need an anvil. Like my first like two months, you know, and I have an anvil. I've been using it for hot stamping now. And, you know, uh, I live in an HOA, so that anvil really doesn't get used the way it, it's meant to be used. Yeah. And, um, you know, eventually I will. And, you know, I have all these dreams like, oh, I got to get a pot press and, you know, power hammer and all that. You know, I want to be an astronaut, all these things. But like, <laughs> you know, basically back to what I was saying is like there is this sub community of guys that are like, oh, you don't forge your your knives. And they may may not say it like that, but there there's an air about it, you know, and and, you know, also, too, the way I think of it is because I'm humble about this is like yeah, they are better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can do that and I can't, you know what I mean? That's the way I look at it. I mean, I, I certainly respect it. And that's why I want to take a class to see if, to see if I like it, you know, to see if it's something that I can do. Performance wise. I mean, they might not be better because, you know, I mean, if they're cold shock in the steel, putting micro fractures in it, you know what I mean? Dam no Damascus is going to outperform a mono steel. That's right. Um, yep. So, you know, I, I think a lot of guys who have that arrogance about them about forging, it's, I think that's a culture that they came up in. You know what I mean? Like they learned from guys who felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. But that's I mean, my opinion. I, I compare everything to, to like, you know, I've been in kitchens for 25 years. I compare everything to stuff in the kitchen. So like when I watched, I jumped on a live, not, I didn't jump on a live. I watched a live with, I, it was maybe maybe even a year ago. And I think it was Jeff Fader, believe it or not. This isn't like a commercial for him, but this is like, I, I jumped on one of his lives and he was like, Hey guys, uh, it's my Jeff Fader impression. He's like, Hey guys, I'm with you. Uh, let's do, uh, let's do a little, let's do a little, uh, uh, forging. So he, he was showing everybody how I believe if I can remember right is how to forge a taper. And, um, the way it looked, 
forging is one of those things that just looks easier than it actually is. You know what I mean? Especially if you're a guy that's seasoned, it just looks a million times easier than what it actually is. But to me, from a kitchen guy, I'm like, this is how you tenderize a chicken, man. You're just pushing from the inside out. And then, you know what I mean? It looks exactly like tenderizing a chicken the way I would, you know, <laughs> coach a cook on how to tenderize a chicken the right way. That's exactly what it looks like. So, I mean, I think, and you know, I've watched millions of videos. No, dozens, but like every single time it looks like tenderizing a chicken breast. So don't tell me it's not. Yes, it's harder. Um, but I mean, it, come on, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> it's the same principles, you know, I mean, it's a, it, all it is is a denser material with higher heat. Right. Right. You know, I mean, you're still moving mass in the direction that you need it to go. Totally. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm right. Go ahead. Uh, sorry. I'm right in the middle on that. I mean, I, I've got a half completed forge sitting right next to me. I have no desire to hammer out a blade. I just want to make my own Damascus cause it looks cool and people yeah. pay crazy money for it mm-hmm. you know I, yeah. I was asked three times last week do you have any damascus will oh, you make wow. me a, a damascus knife and then i show them how much a d- actual real handmade damascus billet costs online and they're like oh never mind mm-hmm. like, but if you can make it in-house you can cut that cost drastically w- way down and yeah. then i can pass the savings along to them you know, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, that's one way to look at it, right? Is from a financial aspect as a, as kind of not, not really a maker, but almost like a businessman where you're looking at it like, Oh, I'm going to cut costs here. But I think also part of that and, and something that's different in many businesses versus like something like being a maker is you want to do it because you want to say you did a hundred percent of it, you know, and I respect that too, but there is that elitism there, you know, it mm-hmm. is that, there, you know, I, I don't know what podcast it was that Neil Kamamura was on, but he kind of was like, you know, if you guys, if you guys don't have a, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trashing Neil Kamamura. I freaking love that guy too. But like he, he mentioned, and I don't know how serious he was, but he was like, if you guys are just, you know, pulling it out and looking at the color of it and quenching it without knowing what, you know, what temperature it is, like that's garbage. He didn't say it like that, but he basically was like, I don't really take you seriously if you're not pulling it out of an even heat oven. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I, I distinctly remember that conversation and it's stuck with me ever since. And this, this could have been like five, six months ago, but like it's been bothering me. And I, and on the podcast, actually, I remember the guys were like, oh, the, everyone's getting butthurt when we say, oh, you're a stock removal guy versus, uh, you know, you're, you're actually moving steel with a hammer. But I don't really necessarily get butthurt, but I do feel that there is a condescending tone there mm-hmm. a little bit. Well, oh, what, yeah, I it, absolutely have felt since the beginning that us stock removal guys are looked down upon in the grand scheme of the community. Yeah. In my eyes, I don't care. I'm covered in tattoos. I get looked down upon when I go to the fucking gas station. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. I'm used to it. Um, there's so much skill involved in grinding a knife from a rectangular piece of steel into a work of art. Sure. That the forging aspect of it, they can, in my book, remain separate. You know, um, and a lot of these guys, they're not even they're just forging it to a rough shape. Sure. Yeah. 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 They're profiling, basically, unless they're adding hidden bolster, uh, integral bolsters and stuff like that. Um, and then stock removal from there. So. Right. 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 It's it's a weird judgment that I think is like not talked about, but we all know that it's there. Mm hmm. 
You know totally. I mean? The whole thing I, itself I, is a hot take. The whole thing yeah. is like, yeah, it's this whole like nobody wants to talk about it, <laughs> but everybody everybody's thinking about it. Everybody. Well, it's funny I that still, you brought up that podcast thing with Neil saying because I remember that too, the exact mm-hmm. same thing. But I also remember that same person on a podcast a few years ago saying, you know, fucking even heat, fuck all that kind of stuff. If if something happens, the world comes to an end. There's not going to be piles of you know bar stock laying around. I'm, I'm going to learn how to do a leaf spring or a coil spring or whatever. And yeah, that's I mean that's what Neil started on, right? You know, and he was all about you know fuck all the technology. I'm I'm a motherfucking caveman. I don't know how many yeah. times I've heard him say that. You know, but along with you know money and fame comes sponsors, and all of a sudden you have to. Kind of change your well, team. Hey, I'll tell you this right now. This is this is funny and coincidental, but my even heat uh, just just arrived <laughs> in Vegas today, and it'll be delivered to my house on Wednesday. So I'll be honest with you. It's one of those things where um, what, what movie was that? Wolf of Wall Street. He's like, I've been a rich man, I've been a poor man, and I'll pick rich every time. Oh yeah. I think it's like that to where uh, you know, even though I've never had a even heat, it's easy to go ah. I can look at the color, which is what I do, or you know, non-magnetic. But like, I'm sure it's like once you go, once you go oven, you'll never go back, type of thing. For sure, you know, and I'd obviously love to have one, but at the same time, what I'm getting at is the shit talking, you know, on the people that don't. When once upon a time, everybody was in the same boat. Nobody said, "I, I think I want to start making knives." Before I buy any steel, let me go buy this two thousand, three thousand dollar oven. Nobody's done that. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, it's, we all come up the same path pretty much. You know, some people were around it at a younger age, and they kind of grew up knowing that they were going to do that, but they were also learning from other people who had better equipment. So when it came right, time yeah. to get out on their own, obviously they know what they need. But the old guys like us, you know, I started when I was 34, I think, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I'd never seen it before. So I didn't know anything about a kiln. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You think it's just for pottery? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my first handful of knives weren't even heat treated at all. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's true. At, on a certain level, I, I really understand what Neil's saying also, though, because when you get to the level he's at, I mean, as far as, like, fame goes for knife makers, um, he's up there, dude. I mean, he's, like, one of the guys. You know, you always see him doing classes for these major celebrities and shit like that. Mm-hmm. If, he oh, yeah. was, if he was hammer or cutting blades out of a old concrete saw blade or, you know, I always see guys using these junk steels to make blades. Mm-hmm. Nobody would take him seriously on the level he's at. And you don't get that good by not being able to change your mindset and progress, which is what he's done. I mean, from the podcast, Jason mentioned earlier where he was talking about, I'm a fucking caveman and all that shit to, I don't have any faith in you if you don't have any even heat. That's a progression. Yeah. Um, when you're on the level he's at selling, not how much does he sell a chef knife for? A couple thousand. A few thousand. I mean, if you're putting out a few thousand dollar chef knife, you want to know to a fucking like mathematical degree that your heat treat was on point. Oh yeah. And yeah. the only and really the that's the right, only yeah. way to do that's in a in a And just to clarify, two things I want to clarify. One, I don't necessarily know if he mentioned even heat. I actually doubt it. I'm sure he mentioned an oven in general just so it's more precise, right? But I really I'm obviously it's not just the fact that he's who he is. I mean, 
it, you put me in his shop today, I still won't be able to make a fucking knife half as good as him. You know what I'm saying? And I'm oh, watching man. his YouTube and I'm watching his Instagrams. And even though half of them are, you know, kind of commercial-esque, I still understand like this guy's come from the bottom and he's one of the best now. I mean, that it is what it is. When he was on, when he was on Forge and Fire, he was, he was only in it like what, eight months, something mm-hmm. like that. I believe I remember yep. like, come on, dude, like get on my level. You know, I can't, I, I'm not, I'm never, I'm not saying anything about his skill. I, I'm nobody. I can't. You know, but I mean, as a actually, you know what, Ryan, I mentioned to you this to you yesterday or the day before I said, as a knife maker, I have no right to judge anyone's knives. You know what I mean? But as a chef, I sure as fuck can and I will. Okay, that goes for my knives and just and, and, you know, on the whole Neil Kamamura thing. This is, I'm going to stop mentioning all these big guys' names, right? But <laughs> this is the last time. But on, on the Neil thing, he did that, um, he did that kind of like forging uh, event. Do you remember? He did it in, was it in California, like North Cali or something? Yeah, outside. Uh, couple, and then he gave yeah. like a platform for other small so makers. Exactly. That's right. And it, it was a ridiculous amount of money, in my opinion, to go because it was very, very small. And it, it, not a lot of people were, were showing up, et cetera. How much was it? it? Um, I don't know. I, I want, it was way more than blade show, but it's not like you're getting one-on-one one attention as, at least the way I read it. Okay. I, I would have went I, and I actually was off that day and I was planning on going, but I'm like, man, to fly up there for one day and spend like $900 between a plane ticket. And I think, I don't know, it was a couple hundred bucks. Don't quote me, I think, but regardless, like I sat there and I watched this like live feed of it. Okay. And my buddy, who's a chef, who, who's been in Vegas with me, and I actually hired him. He was my number two for a while at, at Yardbird, this restaurant inside the Venetian on the Strip in Las Vegas. I, he, he sends me a message, and he goes, you're not going to believe where I am. And I go, what? And he puts a live on, and it's him and fucking Neil Kamamura. And he's showing Neil how to stretch pizzas. And I'm just, like, blown away, like, holy shit. Like, Right. This guy's a chef. He has no idea the 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 who Neil Kamamura is really up until this point. Right. I would kill to be in his position just for that split second, just to ask Neil real questions about like what Neil can actually answer. Right. And it's so crazy because I this guy that I'm speaking about, the chef, he had bought two knives off of me. The, he, he had bought two knives, maybe like the from the first five knives I made. That, that I sold to other people, which are trash. I, I mean, just, I mean, compared to what I can do now, just, they were not, I, I, you know, they were not meant to be shown to Neil fucking Kamamura is my point. Right. And I, and, and I don't know if they were taken to Cali, but I, they probably were. And I'm just like in my, I get all this anxiety, like, Oh my God, because <laughs> I'm thinking he's telling Neil like, Oh yeah, my buddy's knife maker. Here's one of the knives. And, and just knowing Neil, he probably spit on the knife. Like <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> I just, just, you know, all that stuff goes through your head, but I just couldn't believe that was happening. I was like, you know, this is not what I want <laughs> being shown to Neil. If it was. For sure. I've noticed, too, when a lot of these makers get up to that level, you can spot the ones who were able to battle against the ego and the ones who were absorbed by it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm yep. saying? Does that yes. make any sense? Oh, yeah. Yes. And that goes for every profession, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know. I mean, I've met – I mean, my cooking experience and your cooking experience is like – 
fucking Tiger Woods compared to a guy who's semi good at mini golf. Oh, please. You know? <laughs> but like I, most of the really bad cooks I ever worked with were professionally trained because mm-hmm. it's a, it's a different type of cooking. Do you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. like we're my, your cooking is more an art form versus mine is more the experience I had was more push out as many plates as you can, as fast as you can. Sure. Sure. Consistent, consistently. Um, but yeah, I forgot where I was going with that. I'm a little high, but <laughs> sorry, everybody. No, I mean, I came up, I came up, uh, my grandma had a restaurant. My mom's a chef as well. So it was kind of, you know, in my blood, uh, without saying it much more than that. So I was around it forever and it was kind of my, you know, I hate using the word destiny, but it's, it's kind of where I planned on ending up since I'm like 10 years old. So, you know, um, for example, one of the, one of the things my, my grandmother would, would punish me by is like, if I didn't have homework done, um, I couldn't be at the restaurant helping prep. Like that was a punishment, you know, cause I just loved it so much. And it's funny because when I, when I got into, you know, culinary school, I felt like I knew everything. I was like that piece of shit guy that was like, come on, really? You want me to flip an egg? Where's the blindfold? You know, and I'm like trying to make everybody around me look like shit, which is a, a very like, you know, piss and vinegar, very immature way to act. But I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, I was essentially a sous chef at 18. So when I went to culinary school, everyone's like, oh, time to time to make an egg. And people are are genuinely learning. And I'm there scoffing. And, you know, and you're not learning anything that way. And, you know, I've obviously matured much more by, by now, uh, barely. But, <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sitting there scoffing. And it wasn't until my second year of culinary school when I had, a, a, you know, one of my, my chefs or professor, what do you want to call it, like rip my ass. Like, dude, you think you're better than everybody? Because, like, you're better than everybody now. He's like, fast forward 5, 10 years, 15 years. What are you going to be? Are you still going to be like the best guy that can flip an egg right now? Or do you actually want to progress? And I took that to heart. Like I was, I shit myself. Like, this is not cool. You know, I was like, I want to be the first guy to like fillet a salmon. My knife's on the, you know, everything was a competition. My knife was on the cutting board and I'm sitting there crossing my arms like an asshole instead of like helping people, which is what I should have done, which is what being a chef is about. Yeah. And that's one of the weird things about the restaurant industry too, specifically in my experience, the back of house. Because you never know when that next hire is going to come in, who's either going to be a drain on the line or he's mm-hmm. going to be the next rock star who's going to make all the difference in your your whole kitchen's performance. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, at Ruby Tuesdays, part of like when I got promoted to management, they sent us to Maryville, Tennessee, to the headquarters for management training. And one of the main things they focused on the most was being able to spot someone with talent over, you know, uh, not everybody who goes to culinary school is talented, just like not every mechanic who studied to be a mechanic is good at wrenching. You know what I mean? Right. Um, So they, they, which was one of the only good things that they ever taught me in the management training was, you know, to spot that natural talent in somebody, somebody with the sense of urgency who's not willing to push inferior food out. You know what I mean? Um, like if your fucking mushrooms are soft, bro, throw them away. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. some people will be like, Oh, fuck it. I'm not eating it. Yep. Can't, can't see it from my house and they'll send it, <laughs> you know? Yep. But yep. Kit- kitchens are weird like that too. 
not weird, but they're set up, you know, the expo. I don't know if that's what they call it in real kitchens, but the pass. Yeah. Yeah. The pass, the expediter, you know, mm-hmm. the, for Jason or the listeners, that's the person who the cooks give the food to. They're the co- last quality check before the servers take it out to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the ones wiping the plate, giving the cook shit. If they put Mary, marrying every, on it. T- trying to time everything, marrying yeah. everything, talking to every station, making sure everything comes up at the right time, things like that. Just communication mm-hmm. overall. Yeah, because it's not one cook cooking your meal. You got one cook on the broiler cooking the steak. You got one guy over on the flat top, maybe grilling up some mushrooms or onions, whatever you get. <laughs> and, and just to be clear, they they all go rogue. <laughs> so you got to talk all the time. So I've done services where I have no voice by the end. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a pretty common practice as a chef. I, In a weird way, I really miss that chaos. It's controlled chaos, 100%. And there are sometimes where I really miss it that like there was nights cooking where I'd go sit by the dumpster and have a smoke and just be the most defeated I've ever been in my entire life. And then there were some nights where I'd be out there with other cooks or some of the hot waitresses or whatever, <laughs> smoking cigarettes after the rush. And we, we crushed it. So, yeah, you know, it's like a family. The highs and lo- yeah. It's the highs family. and lows are unlike any other job I've ever had. And yeah. you're working with so many people. Like when I worked at Applebee's, which I know this is like, I sound stupid even saying these corporate names in front of you, Todd. No, <laughs> like, no, absolutely not. There, no, there, there's a whole caveat there because it, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you, you have a thousand different, you have like a thousand Applebee's across America. They're just mm-hmm. as hard to run as, you know, say a steakhouse. It's just the numbers are different. You know, what they're focusing on is different. The quality of ingredients is different. But at the end of the day, someone comes in, they're hungry, they order food, they get the food. At the end of the day, it's the same fucking thing. Applebee's was actually very well organized, at least the one I was in. And it was a $4 million store. So it was up there. Like we $4 million in sales a year. For an Applebee's, as far as I know, that's a lot. I know that the Ruby Tuesdays I worked at was a $2 million store. Yeah, for for a low plate average, I would say that's that's actually a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've ran a sixteen and a half million dollar restaurant on Las Vegas Boulevard. I've also ran an eleven thousand, and currently, we, one of our restaurants in Vegas does five and a half. Um, but they're 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 not fast fast service restaurants. Yeah, what what per plate would a one of those? Uh, it depends. Going? It depends if it's if it's not so uh, intimidating. It's like. Um, it's it's not necessarily per plate. It's like cover average, right? So your cover would be like an average of 0.5 appetizers per person and, and obviously one entree per person and 0.2 or 0.1 and a half uh, appetizer, or I'm sorry, uh, desserts per person. But it's roughly like for something not so pretentious, it would be like 48, 50 bucks a head. Yeah. See, And then, you know, apple. a steakhouse, you'll get up to like $95 a head. And that's not including wine. Yeah, that's high. That's a, like the bees. It was like thirty dollars a head. Sure, yeah, yeah they're yeah, doing like sure. they're doing like two for twenty fives with a dessert oh, yeah, included dude. and shit it's like quantity. that. So it's it's like, all quantity, right? <laughs> we did we did forty grand on one Saturday, and I worked a double that day, and I was fucking broken afterwards. And like, yeah. I mean, and that's at you know thirty dollars a head. 
Matt. So that's yeah, no, me. it's it's respectable. I'll tell you what. I mean, I've worked in steakhouses and I've worked in a coffee shop in Vegas, and um, I'm from the East Coast, uh, just like you, Jason, and actually both you guys, right? Mm-hmm. I'm from the East Coast to where I didn't understand what a coffee shop was until I came to Las Vegas, and a coffee shop in Vegas is different than like say a diner in you know, Philadelphia. A coffee shop out here is any 24 hour restaurant inside of a uh, hotel. So it's a fucking monster. We're talking 2000 covers a day. Um, and that's, that's, you know, I, I got the shit kicked out of me. I came from like a steakhouse where we were doing, you know, 500 covers a night at, you know, 80 bucks a head. This is back in 2004. And then, you know, I, I get thrown into either a buffet or a coffee shop that's doing 2000, 2500, 3000 covers a day. And I'm just getting my ass kicked. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm putting up food. I don't respect. I just, I hated my life, you know? That's the yeah. thing about it too, the food you don't respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause like on the, on the point of sale systems for those corporate restaurants, the front of house never knows how to stagger the seating. So like for <laughs> the listeners, they're supposed to stagger seating. So the hostess is supposed to make conversation with the next people coming in to buy the kitchen a minute or two in between orders. That minute or two is, is, all the difference between a total kitchen meltdown oh, and dude. one and one that runs smoothly. <laughs> that is the funniest thing. We were, I was actually just talking, having this conversation because, like, from, from a front of house manager pers- perspective, right? If the hostess seats everybody in front of her, in her mind, she did her job. You know what I mean? She's just like, sit the fuck down, so I can just stand here on my phone, right? But the servers, the servers then get buried, and then they have a section of like, say, four or five tables. They just bury the kitchen. They're just like, all right, the orders are in. I did my job. So it's like, you know, shit rolls downhill type of thing. That's just, that's just what it is, man. It it never changes. It's the same way in a, in a high volume restaurant as it is in a fine dining restaurant. It's the same exact thing. Yeah. Do you guys in a fine dining restaurant, do they set a ticket time? Like, um, the average, like for an entree at Applebee's, it was, uh, 12 minutes. They wanted everything out in 12 minutes. Yeah, there's there's always kind of a a guideline. Uh, I want to say the appetizers are like seven to nine minutes. Entrees are like twenty to twenty two minutes or something like that. It's all uh, it's 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 just a, a suggestion. Yeah, really. the corporate restaurants that's like law. You know mm. what I mean? Like yeah, the managers sure. will get fired if they don't keep those numbers up. And yeah. on their systems, well, they got to turn the table. That's where they make their bottom line. Yeah. And like on those systems, you could fit on our screens, you could fit 24 lines on one screen and then the orders would just accumulate below the screen and you couldn't see them. Mm. So it was like you clear, you clear one or two and (laughs) two more pop up that are already on 10 minutes. So they didn't have the ticket, the actual, you know, micros printer. You didn't hear it printing. It was all screen. Oh, damn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think that'll stay in, in fast food. I don't really see that coming to um, actual fine dining restaurants, but maybe. You never know. I mean, technology took over, so these physical tickets, you know, they're still a waste of paper at the end of the day. I actually never worked with physical tickets. Oh, every, wow. res- every restaurant I was in, they had all switched over to digital. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've only ever worked with physical tickets. And actually, coming from Pennsylvania, um, it was a little more hokey. So I was in like this little 
this really little hotel where they had this really little steakhouse. I don't even know what to call it. And it was, I was a short order cook and uh, you know, they had physical tickets where they'd put on the whole rail and spin the rail. That's like old school, Mm -hmm. Um, you know? And then, and then I think at the time, this was like back in 2000, 2001. Yeah. Where, uh, I thought it was like the peak of technology because we had one of those buzzers where you could buzz the, the waiter to, to let them know that their food was ready. I thought that was like the peak of technology at the time. So funny. See, that was something I wish they had had mm. because you, you get them servers that suck or they go out for a smoke break or whatever. If they had just like those little buzzers that the dentist give you now to go sit in your car, or, you know, so oh, they can let yeah. you know when it's time for you to, cause of Rona, Mm-hmm. Uh, like if they had one of those on their hip and they're out talking to a table, you could hit it and it would buzz. They know they got to yep. go back to the kitchen. That's right. Um, that would be great. That well, Jason, I'm sure you don't want to talk about kitchens all day or food. <laughs> hey, I'm <laughs> really, hey. I'm honestly enjoying the conversation cause I'm learning here. You know, I've never worked in a kitchen or that kind of environment before. So yeah, you know, and we hear all the time yeah. that knife makers need to know how to use knives and, Working in kitchens, that's how you gain that experience. So, yeah, it is kind of actually interesting to me listening to you guys go on about it. If anybody ever looks down on a cook, I challenge them to go work on a line in a busy restaurant. (laughs) You know, I mean, at the bees, we were running 10-man lines all the time. So there was three people on each station when it was busy. I love how you call it the bees. Yeah, at the bees. (laughs) That's yeah. the bee's knees. Was, you know, we called it nuts to butts because literally the guy, like if you're on the grill, shoulder you're facing shoulder. the grill. The guy yeah. behind you, his back is touching your back Ugh, almost. Rough. You know what I That's mean? Rough. So like when you wanted to open the low boy to get out ingredients, you'd have to turn to the side or else mm-hmm. you're like bumping your butt into their butt. And it was tight. So how I long has it been since you were in that environment, Ryan? Six years, okay. no, four years. Okay. Oh, it's not bad. You can no. still you can still throw down. I'm sure I could. <laughs> Jason, you just got back from uh, well, not just got back, but I meant to ask you about your fishing trip. Oh, dude, man, I, I tried to bring it up last week, you know, a little bit because it was fresh on my mind. But the show was kind of taking a different direction there for a little bit, so we roll with mm-hmm. it. But thanks for asking, man. It was so much fun. Yeah, yeah. It I've was, only been deep sea fishing once, man, and it was amazing. Everything about it was cool. You know what I mean? Like just being out there on the water when you finally lose sight of the land and mm-hmm. you're like, man, it's, I could sink humbling right now. Like I'm not shit. I could sink right, right now and <laughs> no one would even know where to begin looking. I'm just, I'm shark shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's just, it's so peaceful. Like, we were on a 40 something foot long boat with three, mm-hmm. 300 pound, 300 horsepower motors. And I'm just like looking out the back, watching the sunrise and, like, man, I'm 900 horsepower out in the middle of the mm-hmm. ocean, like, running from the sun. This is the coolest fucking feeling ever. Totally, totally. And you know, like, the fish underneath you aren't, like, sunfish or trout. Like, if you fall overboard, you could become the meal. Exactly. Yeah. Especially exactly. where you are. I mean, where I am, not so much. I mean, we get sharks here, but they're usually way out because our coast is super rocky. But you were mm-hmm. at, like... Yeah, well, like we were paradise. way out at one point, and the captain of the boat was telling us that a few weeks before, there had been a shark attack, like right Ugh. at the beach. I think he said like thirty yards out, and a girl got bit, and she's losing her leg. It was a, I think he said a nurse shark. I think 
But, uh, <laughs> you're a boat captain. Like, that's how you're going to keep everybody at bay. Like, hey, guys, before we go out, I just want everyone to know, don't fuck around because someone just died last week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, he was a super cool captain. And my two buddies that I that I went with, they go, they've been several times. Like, you can just tell they've, it's just second nature for them. So they're super comfortable. And I was very comfortable till the storm hit. But mm. um, Oh, yeah. you, you got hit by a storm? Oh, my God, dude. It was rough. It was, oh man! Yeah, so, While you were out there, oh man, yeah. that's rough. So we were out yeah, there for that. maybe two hours, and it's just like beautiful skies. It's overcast, so it's not blistering hot, and then we can see a storm. Like mm-hmm. you know, it, it's on the water. There's no trees, obviously. Like you could see it. There's a storm right over there. So I was like, man, how far are you? How far away do you think that is? And I'm thinking it's like, <laughs> you know, 50 feet. Hours away, yeah. Like, oh. Oh, that's probably 20 miles or so. I'm like, well, damn, it oh, looks wow. like it's right there. Well, eventually it came, and it was right there. But mm. we were able to, like, kind of steer around. We got rained on, but it wasn't bad. It was kind of nice, you know. Well, on you the know, way knowing back myself, in. Knowing myself, I'd be the guy uh, trying to get that, that perfect video of playing uh, Lieutenant Dan. In the middle of the the storm. storm. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, that one wasn't bad though. That was how did how did Todd die? (laughs) Yeah, saluting Forest. But uh, on the way back in, there was no dodging it. It got rough. It got bad, rough. And I was in the front of the boat, getting bounced around like a little rag doll. Oh man, it's the worst. Yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, you're fighting for your life on the front of that boat, (laughs) dude. And the cooler with all the fish in it was up there. So, you know, it started out full of ice, and it's like a cooler big enough for me to get in at least twice. And we had it slammed full of fish, mm-hmm. and that boat's bouncing around everywhere, and this bloody-ass ice water is, like, just spraying me. <laughs> but it was okay, because every few minutes, a giant-ass saltwater wave would come over the edge and wash me off just fine. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So, but, yeah, I mean, it was fun. We didn't die. That's the good thing. Got a lot of fish. Just ate that some good, the night before last. I cooked some up. It's real good. Those boat captains make a lot of money, man. A lot of money. Yeah, dude, it's insane. Like the price that we paid to mm-hmm. go on that boat versus what I, in my head, considered to be the overhead. Which when yeah. when we paid for the trip, it was a certain price mm-hmm. plus fuel. So we pl- uh-huh. paid for the fuel that was used on top of just the charter price. Yeah. So, like, what is their what's their operating cost? You know what I mean. Obviously, they've got to carry mm-hmm. a certain license. They got to have good insurance, you know, to go out that far. Yeah. I would imagine. That's they right. Yeah. Probably got an equipment payment on the boat or the motors or whatever. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's yeah probably fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a week. Oh yeah, is no, what no, that no, boat's sure. bringing in. Yeah, we went out uh, deep sea deep sea fishing in Cape Cod last year. And it cost just to take the boat was $600. And that was a special. <laughs> I was like, we're yeah. giving you a deal. And there was, uh, I want to say, four of us. So, I mean, that plus fuel plus uh, you got to tip the guy, I was mm-hmm. told. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Shit. So, yeah, it's, it's no joke, man. Yeah, I want to say the Whatever total. Whatever they say it is, it's double. Whatever yeah, oh, they yeah. say it is, it's double. Yeah, they, and they, they only take you out for what two hours, maybe two and a half, and you know they do that four or five times a day. That's no joke, man. That's I'm sure they pay an arm and a leg in insurance because yeah. that just is such a liability. Just hearing your story, that's a that's a yeah. liability. Well, we went on an yeah. eight hour trip, so we had the boat the oh, whole day. Wow, we left oh, at wow. six a.m. and we got back at 
Well, we actually lost an hour because of the storm. So we got back around mm-hmm. one o'clock. Mm. But uh, yeah, it was it was a blast. Super fun. It's cool. I'm terrified of the ocean. Yeah, terrified. the ocean's the ocean's a scary place, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's no joke. The deepest only- that we got was 198 feet. That's still deep enough. Oh, it was plenty deep <laughs> enough. I was worried yeah. that I was going to look at the depth finder and see like 30 feet and be scared. You know, like I can't swim to the bottom and push off and come back up from there. But, uh, yeah, it didn't. That part didn't bother me none. Actually, none of it bothered me until the storm hit. Then I, I was seriously like I was talking to God <laughs> on the way back in. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> but, yeah, just, yeah. Two things that really scare me, and it's the ocean and bats. That's it. Bats. 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 Come on, I man. Hate, I hate bats, man. Really? You'll see me scream like a girl. Oh, dude. <laughs> I can't say anything. For me, it's spiders. I can't handle spiders. Oh, I'll see, I'm bats. cool with them until they touch me. And then once they touch me, they're dead. You're yeah. gone. But when I see them, I'm not like, oh, my God, a spider, you know. But if there's a fucking bat, yeah. When I was a kid, we used to catch bats when we were fishing. We'd see the bat start flying around overhead right before the sun goes oh, down. With a net, right? Well, now you throw the cricket up in the air, uh, and the bat will swoop down at the cricket. And we, I mean, a net would have probably been a little nicer. We hit them with the broom, <laughs> knock them down. <laughs> you knock them to the ground with a broom, and it kind of like discombobulates them for just a minute. Right That's there. the most Alabama story I've heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> a true story, man. Me and my brother had an apartment that was haunted, and uh there used to be bats in there. And one time we're sitting on the couch and a bat flew down the hallway right at me. And fucking, <laughs> I grabbed that broom. I Babe Ruth that son of a bitch right into the wall and threw him out the window. Like, so now you. when the sun goes down, you fight crime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Side hustle. I killed a baby man. copperhead in my yard today. First one oh, of the no season. Shit. Yep. Oh man. So, that means there's a lot more. Oh yeah. A lot more. Well, what's yeah. funny is, Three years ago, I killed 15 copperheads. Two years ago, I killed, I want to say, like, five or six. Mm-hmm. Last year, I killed one. So that makes me feel like the population is going down, you know. But yeah. it, it's either going down or I'm not seeing them. But I've, I killed one today. And uh, I sent a picture of it to Ryan. Yeah, that's why I do pest prevention, man. It, it sounds like a lot of money, but, I mean... At least you, you see everything less. <laughs> yeah. Well, you they say you can put lime out around your property and keep snakes away and all that stuff. Mm. But the way I see it is the way my property's set mm. up, there's going to be some snakes on it at any given time. Yeah, you got a lot more property than so us. So if I put lime out, that's just going to keep all my snakes in. You know what I mean? If that's the line, they're not going to cross. Mm-hmm. And plus that shit stinks, dude. I don't want that like all over the place. But, uh, Ryan, what happened to you? You were telling me about uh, some kind of California snake story. So, I'm from Maine. Okay, I just Googled it. We have nine different types of snakes in Maine. That's it. None of them are venomous. So, my whole life, you see a snake, you pick it right up. No problemo. (laughs) Pick it right up. Oh, what are you doing, buddy? And, you know, let it go. No big deal. So, I moved to California. And there was this creek behind my house, and I'm down there looking for fossils and stuff because in Northern California, you can find fossils up in the mountains. And I'm looking around, and there's like a little pool of water inset in the mud, and it's full of these little itty-bitty baby snakes. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. So I grabbed one, 
being from Maine where you can pick snakes up. And this thing was, fuck, probably three inches long, no bigger than an earthworm. Oh, okay. And it latched right onto my finger. And I was like, oh, you bastard. And I flicked it off. Within 40 seconds, my fucking whole hand was throbbing oh, wow. and swelling up. So that's small. They're already they're already pissing vinegar. They're, they're already venomous, and they can't control how much venom they release. Right. They're more dangerous when they're small. Because when they bite, it's full that. sand. I had no yeah. idea. And I, where I lived was an hour and a half away from the closest store. So it was at least a two-hour drive to the hospital. So I pretty oh much just God. went up went up to the house and hoped that it got better, and it did. But, yeah. When was this? How long ago? Oh, I've been back for 13 years, 14 years, mm-hmm. so about 15 years ago. Wow. I still don't know what kind of snake it was. Well, it was poisonous. Yeah, yeah it sucked. <laughs> it sucked. My whole hand swelled up, turned red. I was, like, seriously concerned. Yeah. I was home alone with my son, and he was an oh infant at the God. time. Oh, my oh God. God. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. This is really bad. And I just put the TV on and chilled out, and my swelling went down. Yeah, we wow, don't, no shit. We don't take no chances with snakes here because most of them we have here are poison. I mean, yeah, there's, see, there's a I lot never... more non-venomous than venomous in Georgia, mm-hmm. but the ones that you're going to run across, the ones you see, they're they're the fuck you up kind. Oh, yeah. See, I found a four-foot garter snake once when I was a kid that was probably almost as big around as a Red Bull can. Picked him right up. I put him in a pizza box and brought him home, and like then he mm-hmm. escaped in the house. And well, My mom's terrified of snakes. So I'd catch him and I'd bring him. Yeah, I would say naturally most people are, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know quite a few people who, like, if they see a snake, they're gone in the opposite direction. Pew! Yeah. Yeah. We were doing a bush hogging job the other day and run across a big rat snake, probably about a six-footer. Damn. Yeah, I mean, it was a good size. I sent you that picture, I think, Ryan. It was right by the tractor tire in the picture. But um, that dumbass snake, I seen it. It come out of the, the stuff I was cutting. And I seen it, and I was like, damn, that's a good-sized snake. So I hollered at my buddy that was with me, and uh, I said, look, man. He come over, he took the picture, and we kind of just watched it for a minute. And he immediately tried to run under the bush hog as it was going. So I reached over and lifted it up, and he got lucky. He, like, he almost committed suicide. Maybe he was depressed. Well, he's going to have to live with it because we didn't kill him. Those snakes, they actually eat the poison too. snakes. Oh, do they? Yeah, that's they'll, cool. They'll eat copperheads and water moccasins and all that shit. We have oh, a shit. non-aggressive species of wasp here, and uh, I had never seen one before. And then there was one in my garage the other day, and they're bright blue. They're like a shiny blue. And uh, I was like, what the fuck is that? And I Googled it. Turns out they eat spiders, and they're non-aggressive, and they're a pollinator. Yeah. So, we, oh. got, we call uh-huh. them dirt daubers down here. Oh, yeah, yeah, mud wasps. Yep, yep. Yeah, I've heard of those, yep. Yep. Red wasps, I hate them fuckers. I'm, like, deadly allergic to those. Like, if I get oh, stung really? from, like, my belly button up, it's an immediate trip to the hospital. Damn. Yeah. That's one thing we do have here is some gnarly hornets and wasps. Yellow jackets, they'll nest in the ground, and you'll be walking through a field and step on a nest. And all of a sudden, there's 500 yellow jackets stinging the shit out of you because mm-hmm. a yellow jacket can sting repeatedly, whereas like a honeybee stings, loses its stinger, and dies. But 
not yellow jackets, and the wasps will bite you. Hell yeah. Leave big old fucking welts on you. The ones that like they fly around and their legs dangle. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw a new critter the other day. It looked like a wasp, but it was like a wasp mixed with a hummingbird. It was like the size of my thumb. And I've never seen nothing like that before in my life. You should have killed it. That sounds terrible. Them little (laughs) bastards was quick, dude. I tried to swing what I have. I forgot what I had in my hand, but I tried to swing something at it, but I missed. It sounds like some shit from Harry Potter, man. Yeah, that's kind of what it looked like, actually. That gnarly bug you sent me a picture of? That was on your door with the, the huge antennas that they bite. I've been bit by them before. I oh, looked yeah. them up because we have them here. It's a pine boring beetle. Mm-hmm. They eat pine. Yeah, we got all kind of crazy critters. And big. It's like they get stupid big around the swamp where I'm at. Everything's bigger. Yeah. Do you get a lot of bad shit in Vegas? Because it's yeah, dry it's there. Scorpions and tarantulas and shit. Yeah, see, I... And I don't like widows. spiders. I mean, I yeah. don't mind spiders, but if a tarantula was crawling across my workbench, I'd probably fucking jump. Yeah, up. I've yeah. only I've only seen a tarantula one time. That was maybe two years ago. My wife and I we used to walk a lot before I had my Achilles injury. But we used to walk a lot. Like we do like two miles a night or something before bed. And I uh, shit you not, I'm walking. It looked like a fucking kitten walking across <laughs> the the sidewalk but it was a tarantula i'm i'm exaggerating because i'm deathly afraid of spiders but it was probably like five inches wide still for a spider man oh yeah. my god yeah and that's a small one from what i understand Ugh. Ugh. damn and they're hairy the biggest yeah, spider we live right up by, by the rocks by the by the mountains so i mean we're in their territory at that point yeah we the biggest ones we get here we call them dock spiders I think they're called a wolf spider or a wharf spider or something like that, but they get about the size of a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, we have like wolf spiders out here. They get pretty big too, yep. yep. I got a whole collection of them on the front of my garage because I leave my the garage light on at night so they eat all the oh. <laughs> mosquitoes and moths and shit that accumulate. Yeah, We got tree frogs nice. for that on our front porch. Tree frogs stick to the house all around the porch lights. I mangled a frog the other day moving my lawnmower, and I felt so bad. Oh, dude, I mean, he was a soup. fucker, too. He was, I mean, he's probably the size of a baseball. And I ran him over, all his guts came out of his mouth, and he's just standing there with his guts hanging out, <laughs> like in shock. I'm like, fuck. So I put him out of his misery. I turned the mower deck on and shot him across the yard. <laughs> Quick death. Quick death. I did feel bad. I felt appropriately guilty. I don't like killing shit, but I wasn't going to let him sit there and suffer to death, you know. Frogs are a casualty of war down here. So today I was in and out of the house before I come up here, and I looked down at the corner of the door. You no, know, at night, like I said, we got frogs, tree frogs stuck all to the side of the house, but we got toads all over the porch. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently last night on the way in, you know, to end the evening, one of them tried to get in the house, and it didn't make it. It got between the door and the door jam on the hinge side. <laughs> so, yeah, I was looking down today, and I seen it down there. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And I kind of kicked it to the tip of my – I forgot about frogs. Yeah, I kicked I it with the tip of my boot. Frogs existed. Yeah, it's it nasty. I just kicked him off the porch. Speaking of uh, odd critters, the, what, the coolest thing that I thought when I lived in California was the banana slugs. Have you seen a banana slug? Never heard of that. No. 
we had a huge picture window in the trailer we lived in out in the mountains and you'd wake up in the morning, they'd be stuck to the window. And I had a picture on my hard drive. I probably still have it. And the slug was in a U shape, like a horseshoe. And it was six inches from tip to tip across, across the gap. Like that slug was probably a foot long. He was huge. Uh, We didn't realize it. Our dog went out. The dog we had back then, uh, he went out, found a banana slug and was like, oh, I'm going to eat this. So he eats the banana slug. They have like a natural defense of like um, a numbing agent in their skin. So it numbed his whole fucking face for like four oh, days. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen so that. He's yeah. walking around like drooling. His tongue's hanging out. He's like, oh, why? He couldn't do nothing. Yeah. One of our cats licked a toad one time. And I don't know if it just licked it or tried to bite it or what. But it started slobbering all over the place and, like, slinging its head. Mm. But it was fine after just a few minutes. But that was some nasty, bubbly slobber from trying to kiss Maybe the how, them. Uh, how are your ducks? Toads. How are your ducks? They're just a bunch of quack heads. They still won't they, get in the pond. They, they're, they're not being ducks? No, they won't get in the pond. They're they're venturing out a long ways now. They used to wouldn't go, but maybe 20 yards from their coop. But That's strange, man. Now they'll go they'll go all the way to the end of the property, which is like it's a good long ways, and it goes downhill to where once they get back down there, they can't even see the house anymore. So they're mm. they're getting brave. But yeah, as far as they're free swimming they're down there. Yeah, probably so they're probably trying to run away. <laughs> We're free. But as far as swimming in a pond, not happening. They will not do man. it. Man. Damn. Yeah. But the fish are growing. The fish are getting really big. You just got to put one of those uh, those target ducks and just float it in there. <laughs> That's what I should do is get a decoy. My wife went and bought a damn rubber ducky, like the little toy rubber ducky. Yeah. I was like, that's not going to work. And it's, <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> oh, you put it in there? Yeah, she put that in the pond. She's oh, like, well, funny. I know it doesn't look like a duck, but maybe they'll just be curious about what is it, you know, and go see. I was like, okay, well, we'll see. Now that that little oh, rubber man. ducky is still in the pond, ass up, and nobody cares. I think you missed a social media opportunity there. Probably so. Yeah, probably so. But all right, Todd. I know you said you got meetings this afternoon. I'm curious, as a chef, what do you have meetings about? Like new menu things or what? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's funny because I have a very strange job. It's it's not like any other chef job you you would have known. I think, um, you know, I've been with this company for six years. We do a lot of consulting. Um, you know, we have five restaurants up in Vancouver, Canada. Um, we have, you know, one, one stable restaurant here in Las Vegas. And then we have different accounts within Las Vegas and all around, all around the world. I mean, we've done, done work in the Bahamas. I spent like three and a half years on and off in the Bahamas. Uh, we had some stuff in Mexico and, uh, New York city. And, you know, right now we're opening two restaurants in Nashville. So we're kind of all over the place. I do a lot of traveling, um, but essentially my, my experience as a chef and running kitchens and opening kitchens and all that kind of like, um, it helps me, um, kind of bring up a kitchen the way it's meant to 
the way we we operate restaurants and to make sure that they're still running the way we were, they were meant to when we left and come back and all that and just you know constantly checking quality and training and retraining and doing menu tastings and you know every every quarter um, there's a, essentially every quarter is a new season so there's always a quarterly seasonly uh, menu change and tasting and always a collaboration of like you know depending on which city we're in or or whatever um, there's different cuisine because there's different things in season at the time, depending on the, the climate. Um, you know, like when I go up to Vancouver, it's very big in like, you know, local seafood. It's very big on, you know, their salmon that they can only get there. That's just beautiful, bright orange salmon. Um, and so, you know, we try and highlight things that represent the, um, the surrounding area. So we down in Nashville, it's a lot of, it's not going to be, you know, the whole Nashville hot chicken, but it will be everything in the surrounding areas. So, you know, we highlight local farms and stuff like that. Have a have a restaurant in Las Vegas. It's really hard. We have a farm to table restaurant and there's no farms in Vegas. I mean, there's a mushroom farm, which, you know, all that shit's in the dark. So they, it's a it's a mushroom um, farmer that that bought an old warehouse that basically has just like pitch black, you know, like black ops. You have like these like night vision goggles when you walk in there to see all these mushrooms. It's pretty cool. Um, but that's like the closest thing to a farm unless you drive about an hour into California. So all of our local, you know, farms are going to be in California still in Las Vegas. So, um, you know, what I do is, is it's so hard to actually quantify what I do. <laughs> um, but I represent our company as a management company, um, a restaurant management company. And, um, you know, I'm a facilitator. I train, I help hire, um, help coach, I help keep people, um, kind of inspired because, you know, the people that are running the restaurants, they, they have to, they don't want to feel delegated to, you know, they don't want to feel like, Oh, this is how you do it. You know, there, there needs to be a buy-in there. So if I say, Hey, you know, we do it this way and this is why, um, the buy-in has to be reciprocated. It can't just be like, okay, I'm going to do it because you said so, Todd, not because, you know, I want to, you want them to want to do it. You want them to believe in it themselves. So I'm also selling a product essentially. Cool. Yeah. Sounds lots of things. Fun. <laughs> I was like my restaurant dream job when I was a manager. Everybody says that. And it's funny that sometimes I have a, I have like a job to do and it's like, Hey Todd, we're going to go um, do some R and D. So let's, let's all eat at this restaurant. And it's like, it sounds like so much fun, right? You're going to order everything off the menu and you're going to taste everything. And you're going to be like, Oh, what do you think about this? And blah, blah, blah. And here's our comps. And you know, this is our competition, but you got to write a five page report about this. You know what I mean? Like as I'm digesting the food, I'm like, shit, what was on that dish? <laughs> little things like that so there's a lot of pictures yeah. and you, know, you feel like an undercover agent you know food sets down you take a million pictures different angles take a picture of the menu hey can i see your wine list take a picture of the wine list like that way you can reference you know like where are they getting their wines how what are their costs of their wines why do you think they're pricing them this way you know things like that so it's it's a whole thing man it's it's, it's a lot that goes into it would, it. it would certainly be a dream job if i just enjoyed everything and and didn't have to actually you know, not necessarily write reports, but like turn it into work, you know? Yeah. So yours is a little different. I always wanted to, cause when I first got promoted, they sent me to, they called it the black hole was mm. the store that they sent it me to. It was the Ruby Tuesdays in Presque Isle, Maine, which is the like Northern, Northern tip of Maine. And, uh, it was a shithole. I, it was a shithole. I, <laughs> I can't even tell you on the air some of the stuff that I found in that restaurant in the first 30 minutes I was in there. 
Uh, I don't want to know. But then <laughs> once you work, you know, so I'd work, I worked there for nine months, got the kitchen up to snuff. And then they sent me back down here to Bangor because that kitchen was having a turnover of management. So they needed me down there to keep everything going down there. Mm. But every kitchen you go into, unless it's run by somebody who's really good, which most corporate restaurants are not. I mean, they're, I was making $37,000 a year as a salary manager. It's not, they're just, yeah. I, so I worked for Ruby Tuesdays for four years and between three stores, I saw 14 managers come and go, including myself. Yeah, man. It's, it's a revolving door, man. And you know, I think too, is like people use you as a, as a stepping stone. I know a lot of chefs that have worked in great places, believe it or not, that they leave. It's funny. We're back on food, right? Because I'm the guest, <laughs> but um, it's funny. They, they leave to go and work at uh, cheesecake factory because of systems like they like cheesecake factory has systems in place, like things that you only wish you could implement. And it's like, Oh my God, they're doing it this way. And this way it's like, you're looking at things from a very different perspective. And although, you know, maybe the end product isn't really respected. If you were to do it with better ingredients and, you know, obviously dare I say better chefs and a better team, man, that would be a thousand times better. Right. So, I mean, people, you know, you would think maybe 10, 15 years ago, it's not very forward thinking, but you would be like, Oh, Applebee's is on your resume or, you know, but now, especially now because it's like the driest hiring spell we've ever been in. Right. Now I look at that as like, he understands systems. You know what I mean? Like he had a guy like with a clipboard going, you're checking the walk-in temperature every four hours and this is, you have to initial it versus a restaurant that thinks they're the shit, but they haven't checked the rest, the, the walk-in temperature for months. Mm. It just works magically. We had different timers that would go off to remind everybody to change their sandy buckets and like, you know, every every half hour line sweep, somebody come down, sweep the line. Now, if you're in that if you're in that environment for too long, you could call it a crutch. Right. However, if you're in that environment to learn and to kind of like capture those systems to try and take it to another outlet or, you know, use it in your career for something else. That's the best way to use that. Because it could be a crutch. You know, you, you could probably turn into the worst cook in the world if the microwave always dings and tells you when something's done. Mm. But as an outsider that, you know, you, you work at a steakhouse and everything's timings and temperatures and, you know, pro- processes and blah, blah, blah. It's all about the food technique. If you were to bring some of those processes from from those, you know, um, you know chains, those Mickey Mouse chains, it, it will it will only make you better. Yeah, It's not like you're saying, oh, we're now going to cook steaks in a microwave. No, but now we're going to actually have a timer on the chicken because the guy that cooks chicken thinks he's the shit and forgets about it all the time. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, is the system flirting I mean, with the waitress? Yeah. I mean, those systems have to be in place. Yeah. And I mean, all those systems at all those places are designed by somebody from fine dining. You know, it's it's not a bean counter accountant in the Ruby Tuesdays, Applebee's, Longhorn, Darden Restaurant, whatever headquarters coming up with these systems for, like you said, checking the walk in time. Because that 30 second job that they pay five cents for somebody to do because it's only 30 seconds will save them thousands of dollars during a failure. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it always boils down to the bean counter because me as the conduit that actually gets systems started, 
I, I talk to both the guy that's executing it as well as the guy who's counting beans. So I have to be that conduit all the time. So I definitely understand both sides. Yeah, like 100%. they say, we want it this way, and you're like, that's not feasible. Doesn't work. Yeah, that absolutely. Way. And and I and I I firmly say no all the time because I'm at the end of the day, I'm a kitchen guy. It doesn't matter if I'm, you know, if I'm if I'm on an airplane when I land, I'm still a kitchen guy. I'm still a tactical guy. If something's wrong, I'll I'll tell you how to do it or show you how to do it. I'm I'm never I have balls. I'm never going to be like, oh, I don't do that. I'm too good for that. Mm. It's never never yeah. my thing. And that's how you. And that's another thing too about you know back to my job is like you you have to earn respect from guys making 15 bucks an hour. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been. You don't have to sit there and like spout your fucking resume all the time. Oh, I've worked for this and that. And I've done this. Nobody gives a shit. If you can't show them how to nine way a chicken the way you want it done, then you're nothing. Yeah. I know that that was something I really struggled with because my progression into management from like, I got hired when I first got back from California, I was getting divorced and I needed a job. And my roommate's girlfriend was like, I work at Ruby Tuesdays. Come work with me. I can get you a job. Sure. So I started as a salad bar attendant. I was Mm. like 23 years old, something like that. And in three months, I was on the line. And then six months after that, I got promoted to management. And the management promotion was, I didn't do anything extraordinary to deserve it. You know, I was one of the faster, better, cleaner cooks. Um, But I wasn't the best. You know what I mean? But I was the guy one day in the cooler, my general manager who used to be the district manager, but he stepped down cause it was too much stress. He was bitching cause they needed management. And I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> and three months later I was in you know? <laughs> and the amount of hoops they make you jump through. I had to take personality profile tests. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's more all manage, kinds of shit. Managing is, is 99% like, your personality and, and the way you, you speak to people. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, every, every single person on that line has been through the shits, has had a good day, a bad day. You know, every, every chef in the world has overcooked a steak. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter how good you are, you know, and to get to that position, you've got to make mistakes. And yeah. so to humble yourself, it's more about, you know, the, the person you're interviewing. When, I, when I'm in an interview, I, I talk about whatever they want to talk about. I'm not going to sit there and grill them about, you know, their mother sauces. I'm going to talk about, you know, like, tell me where you're from. You know, what got you started in this industry? It doesn't matter if they're 50 years old. What, what matters is why they're there, you know. You got to get a feel for what who they are as a person. Everybody in the world during a job interview is going to feed you the same bullshit answer if you ask them the same bullshit question. Yep. You know what I mean? Where do you see yourself in five years? Well, hopefully here. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, like it, yeah. You know, I interviewed or, a murderer one time. Nice. No shit. I yeah, did too. I, I did too. Yeah. Um, I actually worked worked with a murderer at Applebee's, and we didn't know it. And I'll tell you that oh story in a second. But the girl that I interviewed, uh, Ruby Tuesdays wouldn't hire felons. I don't know if they've changed that policy, but when I was there, they wouldn't hire felons. She didn't put that she was a felon on her application. She comes in for the interview. I asked her, are you a felon? She goes, yes. I didn't put it on there so I could get the interview. I gave her the interview for practice because she had just gotten out of jail for killing a guy. Jesus. And I I was like, (laughs) I'm like, she was nice as pie sitting across from me. I'm like, I (laughs) are. Yeah. I was expecting to hear like, oh, I got a DUI or, you know, like I got a little rowdy one night and broke a window and I got put in jail. (laughs) No, I killed a guy. I just got out. 
for 12, like 12 years, something like that. She Damn. got like involuntary manslaughter or something. Jesus. Yeah. yeah finding, friend. finding cooks now is it's slim picking. <laughs> so now that interview would go very different. It would be like, Oh, he probably had it coming. So can you work the grill? <laughs> yeah. So when I worked at Applebee's, we worked with this big native American guy named Ben and Ben, like I'm six foot, 245 pounds. And this dude towered over me. I mean, he was just a giant, nice as pie. He was awesome working. And our kitchen manager, because I was no manager at Applebee's, I was just a cook. Uh, he was a very intense dude. Like he was on a hundred, didn't matter if it was four 30 in the morning or 11 o'clock at night. He was on a hundred all the time. Super intense. Uh, he'd call you a piece of shit, tell you you're a fucking huge disappointment. Like, He'd make you feel like a piece of shit. Well, one day he's talking to Ben and he's like, what's the matter with you? You can't even fry fucking French fries or something like that. And Ben turned around and like threatened him. He was like, do you want to go in the walk-in? I'll break your fucking face. Something along those lines. Didn't think anything of it. Chris had been threatened before. He was a douchebag. So a month later, Ben doesn't show up to work. And we're like, where the fuck is Ben? And then a week after that, we see in the paper that he got sent to jail because he got what he got in trouble drinking at a bar or whatever. He got sent to jail. So we we're like, what was he on probation or parole for? So then we looked it up. He got in a fight with a guy at the beach and shoved sand in his mouth until the guy suffocated. Oh my God. It's a hell of a way to go out. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God, we've been working with a psycho this whole fucking time. You never know. Wow. Yeah, you really yeah. never know. Like, yeah. I thought he was nice. Hmm. But this has been super fun. I never get to talk about kitchens anymore. So, like, I know, like, it. I, I know you said it's not silly, but to me it seems silly. But because, like, of our experience differences. But I never get to talk about the cooking days anymore. You know what I mean? People like, oh, you worked in, you flip burgers, huh? <laughs> you fucking piece of shit. <laughs> like, yeah. It's different. It, it, the kitchen environment is addictive. It, it really can be. Because, like, since I got out of the kitchen, I've worked by myself. You know what I mean? Whereas when you're in a kitchen, you're never working by yourself. Even closers, there's always two people, you know? Right. So it's like... Like you get this camaraderie with people. I have found though that it's ruined restaurants for me. My wife fucking hates it. I'll go like we went out to eat last week and I'm wiping the sills by my table. Get like <laughs> pulling up like the dust bunnies on the sills and like she's like, Stop, stop. I'm like, I can't help it. I have to. <laughs> she got mad at me one time because I flicked the light and like snow dust was coming down on the table. These yeah. motherfuckers don't clean, imagine what the kitchen looks like. <laughs> yep. Well, Todd, we appreciate you being on here with us, man. It's been a fine episode of Kitchen Talk. And uh, are, you guys are both freezing up. I don't know if something's going on with the Wi-Fi here or what, but you're cutting out and freezing a lot. Um, but anyway. I still hear you. Yeah, I still see you guys. Thanks for coming on. We're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, getting kind of late here in the studio and if i go too much longer i'll be 
charge that extra hour, no matter right, right, no matter what. So freestyle out the Patreons real yeah, quick. Yeah. Oh shit! Let me pull them up. Let me pull them up. I should have had that uh, ready. Check out Phoenix Abrasives, your one-stop shop for all your abrasive needs. Use the promo code Hustle Ten at checkout for ten percent off your entire order. All right, I just did that actually. Awesome. Our lovely Patreons: Donnie Dulovich, Knife Material AT, Blade Works, Brigham Kendall, Papa LeBlanc. I got to slow down. I can't do it like that. <laughs> Mark LeBlanc, Mark Vanderwerf, Bex Armory, Todd Harrington, the man. Hey, Dennis Tyrell, Trox Claire, Custom Cutlery, Zachary Sowell, Maritime Knife Supply, Driver Defense Knives, Noah Bloomberg, Crafty Man Forge, Brian Henningkamp, Echo Blades, Eric Andrews, Bremner Built Knives, and Snake Branch Knife Works. Thank you, everybody, for helping us out with that and covering the cost of this beautiful show. And if you want to pitch in on it, go to patreon.com and look up Hustle and Grind Podcast. Nice. The kitchen episode. <laughs> the kitchen episode. That's what we'll name it. The Ryan like it. fanboy over Todd episode. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Todd, real quick, what TV show were you on? I'm sorry, say that again? What TV show were you on real quick? Oh, I was on Cutthroat. Um, I was on Cutthroat. I was on Sandra's Restaurant Remakes, and I was on uh, Late Night Chef Fight, three different uh, national TV shows. I fucking nice. told you, dude. He's famous. Yeah, I'm going to have to go check no. those out. Not even close. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. We'll talk to you again next week. All right, boys. Keep on Thank hustling you. and keep on grinding. Bye. That was an excellent one. Superb. Excellent. <laughs>